God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey friends, this is Jason Elam. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I love the conversations that we have here, and I hope you do too. But you know what I like even more than listening to the interviews on the podcast? I really love the conversations we're having on the Messy Conversations group over on Facebook. It's a safe, secure, private group where you can talk about your doubts and your struggles and faith and religion and all of life in an atmosphere free from judgment and full of love and respect. I would love for you to join the Messy Conversations group over on Facebook. You can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode, and I hope you'll join us there. Also, please check out our Patreon page. You'll also find a link to that in the show notes for this episode. It's patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. That is where you can sign up to be our patron on Patreon. We could not do this podcast without the 25 supporters who have committed $1 a month or more to supporting the work of this podcast through Patreon. For each giving level, there are specific reward tiers. You can get everything from early access to each new episode of the podcast, all the way up to free copies of my forthcoming book, just for you. Uh, We are publishing articles just for our patrons on Patreon. We are also about to start releasing videos that will be specifically produced just for the patrons of this podcast on Patreon. So would you check that out? Patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes and make a pledge. It's just automatically drafted every month. You can cancel anytime and there's certainly no hard feelings about that, but I would love to have your support. It makes it possible for us to do what we're doing and we honestly could not do it without you. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. My guest today is Shane Claiborne. Shane is a best-selling author, renowned activist, and sought-after speaker. He writes and speaks around the world about peacemaking, social justice, and Jesus, and is the author or co-author of numerous books, including The Irresistible Revolution, which honestly changed my life, Jesus for President, and Executing Grace. Claiborne is the founder of The Simple Way in Philadelphia and a co-founder of Red Letter Christians. His work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Christianity Today, Esquire, and Spin, and on Fox News, NPR, and CNN. He did graduate work at Princeton Seminary and received an honorary doctorate from Eastern University. Lives with his wife, Katie Jo, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Shane Claiborne. Yeah, man. So uh, thanks for having me. It's great. I've been looking forward to this. Well, so have I. I'm really honored to speak with you today. Uh, I'd really just love to hear more about your spiritual backstory before we kind of dive into the issues. What kind of home did you grow up in when it came to faith? I grew up in the Bible Belt down in East Tennessee. As you can tell, I'm not ashamed of it. I, uh, you know, grew up um, not far from the Smoky Mountains. Um, and I, I was Methodist for a while. My, <laughs> I got the, the Southern Baptist in there, and then I got in the Charismatic Church, and you know I've I've been all in it, and uh, uh, you know on a lot of these things that we talk about, like uh, the death penalty and gun violence and all that. I you know I grew up in a in a segregated town in East Tennessee, and we you know we had country music songs like uh, "This House Is Protected by the Good Lord and a Gun," and if you come. Up uninvited you'll meet them both son you know so <laughs> that's my world and i i love it you know there's parts of it that i've 
I've really, really have shaped me in the best of ways. And there's parts that I'm sort of, uh, uh, you know, rethinking a little bit and came up to Philadelphia uh, to go to college at Eastern University, fell in love with the city, and I've been here for the last 25 years. So was there a point in your faith when you began to rethink, uh, maybe have a spiritual evolution? A lot of what we do here are deconstruction stories. Did you have a period of time where you deconstructed your faith? Well, I, you know, I, I've had many different moments that I feel like I've, I'm being shaped, you know, and certainly, um, I mean, some of that, you know, growing up in the Methodist church, I just started to feel like, man, I want folks that really believe in miracles and believe in the fire of the Holy Spirit. So that's when I got involved in the charismatic church. And there's parts of that that I loved and ended up seeing some weird stuff that we did there too. We had this thing called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames where, you know, we do these you know, have mercy pyrotechnics and everything, you know, and um, I, I remember that well. We we you know scare people into heaven, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, but you know, I came to Philly, and what what happened? I really loved. Um, I studied sociology with Tony Campolo, who is a wonderful you know Baptist evangelist and. Uh, sociologist. He's a great friend of mine and partner nowadays. And I studied the Bible. I, I really like how Carl Bart said, we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven, a license to ignore the world we live in. You know, and I, I really came to see that the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about isn't just something that we're going up to when we die, but it's something that we're supposed to seek to bring on earth as it is in heaven to, you know, bring, bring that dream of God down to earth and reimagine the world. So that's what I really got into. And of course, you know, while we were in college, we became a part of a movement of homeless mothers and children in Philadelphia that were facing eviction from this abandoned Catholic church. I mean, it was a wild time that gave birth to the community I've been a part of for the last 20 years, but they, you know, they, they were living in this abandoned Catholic church and had hung a banner on the front that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? <laughs> so that, that really opened my eyes up to a lot of things, you know, and uh, uh, out of that, we started our community. You wrote a book a few years back entitled Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us. What drew you specifically to the struggle against capital punishment? Well, I'm not a single issue person. I, I really uh, have come to be a champion for life. And, you know, this this audacious assumption that the author of life cares about life, you know, and that every person is made in the image of God. That's at the very core of, of everything I believe. And yet I began to see how narrowly we've come to think about what it means to be pro-life, you know, especially growing up in the Bible Belt. We talked a whole lot about being pro-life, but really we would be more accurate to say that we were anti-abortion or pro-birth because we were really just talking about uh, the, the issue of abortion as if it were the only life issue. And I still care deeply about abortion, uh, reducing and eradicating abortion. But I've, I've just seen the irony that in America, you can be 
pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, and still say you're pro-life <laughs> as long as as long as you got abortion right, you know. So I, I really want, wanted a, a, a consistent ethic of life to be pro-life from womb to tomb, you know, uh, and, and and to not act like, uh, you know, life begins at conception and ends at birth. But really, we want to care about uh, people after they're born, too. And, and so when I started to think about that, especially look at it, one of the things that I found was that on two particular issues, gun violence and abortion, Christians have been one of the real obstacles, I believe, in, in, in that ethic of life. For instance, I, my, my latest book on, the, on guns, Christians own guns at a higher rate than the general population, you know, and we've sort of been often the champions of, of guns and gun rights. And, and I, you know, growing up with guns, I just started to really to, to challenge that in my own theology and, and ethics. But then with the death penalty, it's, it's just even more stark that 85% of executions happen in the Bible belt, 85%. So the Bible belt is the death belt in America. And as you look at it, it's very clear that the the death penalty has survived in America, not in spite of Christians, but because of us. And as one who spent half of my life, I've probably spent just as many years being for the death penalty as I have against it. But I began to look at the, the sort of spir- the spiritual foundation and the theological backbone uh, that Christians have given to the death penalty. And I saw a lot of holes in my own theology. And I mean, just to, to be really frank, I think the, de- the death penalty raises one of the most fundamental questions of our faith, which is, is anybody beyond redemption? Uh, and there's a lot of little facets of this. And that's why I ended up writing a book executing grace to, to really challenge that because it, it is about the death penalty, but it's a, 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 a the, the death penalty kind of uh, surfaces a whole lot of other really, really important um, topics. Do you feel like it seems like there's a large movement that's that's coming to say to our country, our criminal justice system is biased against low income people and people of color. Is that what you found? Oh, there is no doubt, as my friend Brian Stevenson says, uh, that our criminal justice system treats you better if you are rich and guilty than if you are poor and innocent. And uh, as you look at our criminal justice system, especially when it, I mean, you you think of the death penalty and it's, you know, we often think we need this, you know, for the worst of the worst, for the worst criminals. But the fact is that we're not executing the worst of the worst. We're executing the poorest of the poor and disproportionately people of color. That what's really clear with the death penalty is it's it's not, uh, you know, what, what determines who dies is not the atrocity of the crime, but it's often the resources of the defendant and other arbitrary things like the race of the victim. When the victim is white and the defendant is a person of color, um, that, that uh, just 
unbelievably increases the possibility of an execution. Uh, geography, you know, uh, the 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 zip code that a crime is committed often can determine who, you know, whether or not someone actually receives a death sentence. So, as my friend sister Helen Prejean says, uh, the the one without the capital often gets the punishment, and we see that in in a really clear way with the death penalty. There there just aren't any rich people on death row. And as you think of those who have committed some pretty terrible crimes, if they have resources and uh, some degree of influence and social capital, then they they uh, often don't get the death penalty. For instance, Jeffrey Dahmer uh, did not get the death penalty. Charles Manson died of natural causes in prison. Harvard-educated Ted Kaczynski is still alive. So there's a whole lot of places that we can see both the bias of race and of um, the, the influence of poverty in, in, in the, ex, you know, the real way that the death penalty sort of uh, is carried out in America. I know a common response when I raise the issue of the death penalty to church folks, uh, they'll quote a scripture. Well, the Bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You mentioned earlier that really in the Bible Belt, it's the Christians propping up capital punishment. Are there spiritual arguments against the death penalty? Uh, there sure are, and I know them well because I use them. You know, I've always been passionate, um, even when I've been wrong. <laughs> but I, you know, I, so I'm, I, I went back and looked at the Bible again because I had used it really as my. Uh, I still see it as my authority for life and my ethics. Um, but you go back to the the Bible, and we'll get to the eye for an eye thing. But even just saying, like, there's so many folks that go, well, you know, how can God be against the death penalty when God really inaugurated it uh, in the Hebrew Bible? But you look at the 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 Old Testament, and capital murder was not the only um, uh, death worthy crime. There were over thirty death worthy crimes that are listed in the Old Testament, and they included things like working on the Sabbath day. Um, so I always say everybody but Chick Fil A would be in trouble on that one. You know, kids <laughs> are closed on Sunday, but you you know you had disrespecting your parents, um, different you know forms of sorcery and witchcraft, which is why even in the United States, in the colonies, we had some of those crimes as deathworthy crimes, like in the Salem, uh, the the witch trials, you know. Um, and you, you, you look at how we've evolved, and there aren't many people that are looking to bring back the biblical death penalty for uh, disrespecting your parents or you know, the, the, the crimes that are listed there. But then, you know, you get to this part of, of where it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and it's one of the most quoted Bible verses in the world. But we we've really misinterpreted it, I think, where it was meant to it was actually an ancient form of of thinking about justice, philosophy of justice that allowed for reciprocal harm. So you could harm someone back in as much as they had harmed you, but it put a limit on that. And and the 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 point of it was to de-escalate, you know, to to stop the spiral of violence. So if someone poked your eye out, you couldn't go poke both of their eyes out. If they broke your arm, you couldn't go break both of their arms and burn down their mom's house. Like you could only return the harm that was done to you. And so we might think about it as an eye for an eye, 
a tooth for a tooth, no more, you know, so it set a limit and it was meant to limit the harm that you could do rather than be a license for revenge, which is what we've kind of used it for. So the old, the, the, the eye for an eye thing was called Lex Talionis, where we get the idea of retaliation from. And yet, like, I think when most of us think of that these days, we would think, okay, just because you could doesn't mean that you should, right? Like if you poke my eye out, Jason, we, I wouldn't poke your eye out. Like I, we can do better than mirroring the injustice. You know, uh, it, we, we don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong. And yet somehow in the most extreme case of murder, we still hold out this, this idea that we can kill to show that it's wrong to kill and that's where I think Jesus really shines so brightly because he quotes it, right? And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this, you know, love your enemies. And he's going to show us a way that, you know, as the scripture says, I don't believe Jesus came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so I think what he's doing is showing us what the fulfillment of that looks like. And it looks like not mirroring the evil that's done to us. So even though we may have a legal right, doesn't mean that it's the, the best uh, the way that we can respond to evil or violence. And, and so that's where I, I look at Jesus and he shines so brightly. And my, my rabbinical friends uh, are, are really interesting too, because they say, you know, even though the, the Old Testament had the death penalty, we made the, the prohibitions for carrying out an execution so strict that we almost never actually executed someone. So we wanted these things to be very clear that these were important to God, they're important to the community. And yet the rabbi said, if we execute someone in two generations, there's something wrong. Uh, and 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 my, my rabbi friend said, the, the wild thing is, like, you, Jewish people did away with the death penalty a long time ago, but it's the Christians that are quoting the Jew, the Hebrew scripture and using it to justify the death penalty. And he said, we don't even do that. And he said, and you have Jesus to deal with, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I think any death penalty supporting Christian really does have the nagging problem of Jesus to deal with. And, and, and that's what I also it came down to for me is, you know, doesn't get much more clear than than the point where Jesus is interrupting the execution of a woman caught in adultery in the Gospels. And, you know, she's drug out before the town and humiliated. And this was a death worthy crime. You know, arguably, these guys had every right to execute this woman. And as they've got their stones ready to kill her, Jesus just enters the scene. And he interrupts this execution. And he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, he'll remind these men, you know, if you've looked at someone with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. If you've called someone a fool, you've committed murder in your heart. And the the stones start to drop and the men walk away. And what you're left with is this unmistakable truth that no one is beyond redemption, and no one is above reproach. And the closer we are to God, the less we should want to throw stones at other people. Um, I mean, Jesus is there as the only person who has any right to throw a stone. 
and has no desire. So, so I, I think as we look at, at, at the message of the Jesus and the whole scripture, it is about redemption. And, you know, as you look at the Bible, it is filled with messed up people. I mean, Moses killed a man. David, uh, a, a man, you know, I, I, after God's own heart is what I learned in Sunday school. But he raped Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah killed in the battlefield. And he, you know, goes on to have a powerful time of repentance and goes on to write so many of the Psalms. Saul of Tarsus, by every def- definition, was a religious extremist, a terrorist who went door to door torturing and killing Christians. And yet, you know, he he has this powerful conversion and goes on from to be, you know, from Saul to Paul to really have uh, uh, the, this beautiful message of grace where he'll th- say things like, uh, chief of sinners am I, you know, because he had seen he had done some terrible things. So if we believe that murderers are beyond redemption, we could rip out half the Bible because it was written by them. And uh, the Bible would be a lot shorter without grace. And at the end of the day, I think what this whole death penalty and what it really raises for us is, is the question of, uh, do we believe that someone's beyond redemption, even someone who we know has been guilty of murder? Uh, you know, the, the, just the impression that comes through in the courtroom that convicts them is just totally opposite of what you've experienced sitting in the room with these people. I, I guess I asked that question because I think it was a turning point for me when Troy Davis was about to be executed in Georgia. And people that I respect like yourself and sister Helen and so many others spoke out and said, not this man, not this time, you know, you spoke out on his behalf and pled for mercy. And I see you continuing to do that even with uh, Nate Woods execution in Alabama this week. Um, What is it about those stories that has so resonated with you that you're willing to kind of put your name on the line to cry out for mercy for them? Well, yeah. So there's, there's every execution is so tragic um, but they're also every one of these folks have stories, you know, and I, I've gotten to know so many of the folks on uh, death row in different states, especially in my home state of Tennessee. And I had the first person who I knew well that was executed uh, last year, a man named Don Johnson. And I think proximity makes all the difference in the world because it's easy to just read the newspaper or watch the news or hear the stories and think, wow, this person is just a a monster or something. Um, And yet, uh, as as Brian Stevenson says, we're all more than the worst thing we've ever done. And there are people who I know on death row, who I believe are innocent. I believe Troy Davis uh, was innocent. I, uh, in fact, our track record on the death penalty is terrible. For every nine executions that we've carried out, there's been one exoneration. So that means someone that was sentenced to death that was able to prove their innocence. So, I mean, if you think about it, that's not good. You know, like if every 10 planes that took off, if one of them crashed, we'd be like, whoa, we've got a major problem here, ground all the planes, you know, and yet that's our track record with the death penalty is for every nine executions, there's been one 
uh, exoneration because of innocence. And, and you know, um, I know a lot of the folks that were sentenced to death um, and later proved innocent by DNA or by other other things. Um, so that there's those cases that create. I mean, it's just unimaginable to think. Can you imagine being in just in jail for a crime that you didn't do, much less facing execution? Uh, like my friend Derek Jameson, who was uh, sentenced to die for a crime he had nothing to do with, spent 20 years on death row, had six execution dates, was hours within his own execution before it was stopped. And then 20 years into this, he, the, the prosecution was forced to release all the evidence and over 30 pieces of evidence proved unequivocally his innocence and he was released. But this is after he's lost 20 years and he's seen 50 of his friends go to the death chamber and been traumatized by that um, and uh, lost his mom while he was in prison. So, there, I mean, there's just those stories of innocence are enough for many people who believe in the death penalty in principle to say, you know, I just don't trust that we are um, infallible, you know, that they that we trust our government with this irreversible power of life and death. So there's many people who say sometimes the question is not whether or not someone deserves to die, but whether or not we deserve to kill, especially when we have such a, a bad track record for, for, you know, knowing who's who's innocent and who's guilty. But then there are people who are guilty, like the, the person I started telling you about, Don Johnson. I believe he was guilty of, of a horrible crime of killing his wife. And um, he has, uh, the more I got to know him, I saw just a, his whole life of abuse and um, uh, bullying and all of this stuff that, that has helped shape who he was to that point of the murder. And that's certainly not to excuse anything that he did, but he, you know, then he ends up being sentenced to death. His daughter was very much in favor of, of the execution. She had lost her mom and she said, I want him to die, you know? And, um, and then she, I got to know her a little bit. And she said over the years, her hatred of her father wasn't hurting him, but it was destroying her from the inside. And she knew there just had to be a different way forward. And through a lot of courage and a lot of pain, they began to heal some of the wounds of their relationship. And then the state of Tennessee went to execute Don. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, I was with him three days before his execution. His daughter became one of the the, the main voices uh, to try to spare his life. And, um, and, and right before his execution, I said, uh, as we went to pray together, I said, Don, what do you want to pray? And he prayed that we would all have courage to continue to stand up for mercy. He prayed for the governor, you know, and then as the this horrific kind of ritual of death began to unfold, you know, he's given his last meal and Don decided he wanted to fast. And the $19 allotted for his last meal, he donated to the homeless mission in Nashville and he fasted his last meal. And then as he went to be executed, he asked the, uh, you know, he's, he's given his last words and his last words were essentially, I want to ask forgiveness from everybody that I've hurt. And I've hurt a lot of people. And then he said, and I want to extend forgiveness to 
the folks who are getting ready to take my life right now. And then he asked the warden if he could sing because he wanted his last words to be singing words of praise to his God. And so the last words that he he said were uh, singing the song, soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. There's no more dying there. There's no more crying there. I'm going to see the king. And it absolutely shattered me, you know, to think that here is a Christian governor, Governor Bill Lee in Tennessee, that is carrying out these these executions, has the power to to get to know these guys and hear what Jesus has done in their lives. And, you know, I think that if we had the kind of relationships with uh, one another, we we could we, we we would think really differently about the death penalty. And that's one of the things that's just absolutely changed me, Jason, is getting to know folks that whose lives are on the line, who are facing execution, some of whom I believe are innocent, some of whom I believe are guilty, but I know are more than the worst thing that they've done. And also getting to know the victims, the family members of murder victims who have shown me that the death penalty just mirrors the evil that was done to them. As they've told me, it just creates a new set of victims. The death penalty just extends trauma and agitates wounds that are already there. And and so, you know, violence is the problem. It's not the solution. And that's certainly, you know, what I've come to see with the death penalty. Maybe somebody's listening today and their heart's beginning to change on this issue and they see the injustice and they realize now that we're executing innocent people, not not to mention the fact that we shouldn't be deciding who's worthy of life and who isn't, that it's not a pro-life position. What can the average person listening right now do to work for this issue or these lives? There, that's a great question, Jason. And there's there's a lot of things that we can do. And, and first of all, I'm really optimistic on this. Um, every year, executions are, are dropping. Um, executions are the lowest that they've been in, in uh, 20 years. Death sentences are the lowest that they've been in um, 40 years. Um, when, when it comes to... Um, the states that are executing almost every year, a new state abolishes the death penalty. I was just in Colorado where both the, the, the House and the Senate voted to abolish the death penalty. And, and many of these states are conservative led, showing that I think there's a lot of people that are rethinking this. And this is not a partisan issue. For many people, I think it's an issue uh, of of life and and of faith of mercy, so we right now and especially in the state of Tennessee, Tennessee and Texas are leading our country in executions, and there's only five or six states that are actively executing right now. So I think we need people of faith to to you know really courageously speak their faith and voice. Uh, alternatives to the death penalty. So folks can call Governor Bill Lee and write him and email him. Over half of the men on Tennessee's death row have now asked Governor Lee in Tennessee to come visit them and pray with them, just to hear what Jesus has done in their lives. And that's our request to, to Governor Lee. The, you know, Governor Abbott in, in, in Texas is also a professing Christian. So I think we need to appeal to people's faith and just say, hey, we can deal with folks that are guilty of violent crime without 
executing someone, you know, that to be anti-death penalty is not to be anti-justice or to think that crime should go without consequences or, you know, to, to disrespect victims' families, but just to say we can do better than killing to show that killing's wrong. And, and, you know, one more thing on this, there's a generational thing here too, where uh, 80%, over 80% of millennial Christians born after 1980 are against the death penalty, not in, in, despite their faith, but because of it. They can't reconcile the death penalty with Jesus who said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. When, when Americans were asked if Jesus would be for the death penalty, 95% of Americans said no. We've just got to convince the Christians of that. (laughs) So, you know, a a generation from now, I'm convinced we will have abolished the death penalty and we will look back at the death penalty like we look back at slavery with horror and shame and really embarrassed that we use the scripture to justify it. Uh, And so that, you know, it doesn't take courage to say that slavery is wrong a generation after we've ended it. It took courage to say slavery is wrong when it was the status quo and when it was, uh, you know, accepted. Uh, and it's the same way, I think, right now with the death penalty. This is a time that we need courage. We need Christian artists and pastors and writers and uh, to use their voice to say we can do better than the death penalty. And as people of faith, we want to we want to abolish the death penalty in the name of the Prince of Peace and the executed Savior who came to save sinners, not to condemn the world. Spent 25 years of local church ministry in Alabama. And when we start trying to apply the gospel to justice issues within our culture, we're often dismissed as liberals who don't take the Bible seriously. How do you respond to criticism like that? I, I think that... Uh, that these this a lot of these issues are not about left and right they're about right and wrong and we can be, we can be engaged in conversations around policies without being partisan uh, i'm not uh, i'm not affiliated with either political party and in fact one of my reservations one of my hesitations with that is because i don't see a party that has a very consistent ethic of life. Um, but I don't think that, that that because we don't fit neatly into a party means we could, we should disengage because in gubernatorial, you know, in governor's elections, governors literally have the power um, to execute or not execute in, in most of our states. And so there's really a lot at stake in this. And I've come to think that loving my neighbor as myself uh, requires caring about policies that affect my neighbor. Uh, So whether it's immigration or gun violence or the death penalty, I don't think that we should ignore these things, but we should make sure that our ultimate allegiance is in Jesus. And that Jesus, uh, you know, I always say it's uh, our hope, uh, as the old hymn says, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is not in the GOP or the DNC. Our hope is in the lamb, you know, not the elephant or the donkey, but the lamb. And I think that's really what we've got to to cling to. But, you know, like Jesus said, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. That has major ramifications on how we think about, uh, you know, welcoming immigrants and refugees. 
And, and I don't think that that's a partisan thing. It's a Jesus thing, you know, same with the death penalty. I, I think that, uh, uh, in the last presidential election, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were for the death penalty. So there wasn't even really a major pro-life candidate when it comes to the death penalty. And now that's changing. I think we have a number of presidential candidates that are against the death penalty. And and while it's not the only life issue at stake, it certainly is uh, one of them. So I think we... Uh, you know, we need to do better, but we don't want to mix our faith with one political party. As my friend Tony Campolo said, that's kind of like uh, mixing our faith with a political party is kind of like mixing ice cream and cow manure. It doesn't mess up the manure, but it sure messes up the ice cream. <laughs> that it does, for sure. I, I hear what you're saying, and and I totally subscribe to what you're putting out there right now but it feels like all the every time we get involved in justice as followers of Jesus that we we end up kind of in a in a partisan camp i mean it, we do kind of start rallying around what are considered liberal causes is it possible for us to follow Jesus in these justice issues without becoming a cheerleader for one political party over the other now i know you've ju- you've just dealt with that topic but it just it just feels like there's this constant pull to the left or to the right. Uh, is there something we can do to avoid that, just becoming a, a a clone of a political party? Oh, absolutely. Well, for starters, I, I don't endorse candidates. I kind of think of uh, that I've already endorsed the agenda of Jesus, you know, uh, but I do support policies that I think line up with my face. So rather than endorsing a candidate or party, I look at things like ending the death penalty or reducing gun violence or reducing abortions for that matter, you know, and saying, like, how can we uh, do a better job at this? And, and, and like I said, in many states, it's conservatives uh, that have been leading the way to the abolition of the death penalty. And, and uh, there's a whole organization, conservatives concerned about the death penalty. So, you know, it, it aligns with a lot of conservative ideas, as, uh, and, and the, these are not uh, partisan topics. For me, the death penalty really is uh, a major issue about our faith. And, you know, as I think of Jesus on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross was, I mean, he was executed, and he absorbed all of the violence of the world and triumphed over it with love and mercy, forgiving even those who were killing him. He made a spectacle of death through his execution in order to subvert the powers of death and, and triumph over them with, with love and an empty tomb. And, and so, you know, I think of Jesus as, as, as uh, like water poured on the electric chair to short circuit the whole system of death. And I think now, you know, whenever we, we, we kind of rejoice in an execution or death, we, we undermine the very thing that Jesus came to heal the world of. Uh, so, you know, I, I think these are, these are much bigger than political issues. They, they surface some of the, 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 the big questions of our faith. Shane, I'm so grateful for you spending some time with me tonight to discuss this important issue What's next for you? What are you working on these days? Man, we're doing all kinds of things. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time still working on the death penalty. Uh, sadly, Tennessee 
has started executing again after 10 years without execution. So I'm very close with many of the men that are facing execution. So I'm doing a lot in Tennessee. Whenever there's an execution, we're walking. It's about eight miles from the execution chamber to the governor's office. And we're calling it a march for mercy as we pray for mercy. And folks can join us there. We're, we're also thinking about doing a fast around the Easter season because Tennessee brought the electric chair back on Maudy Thursday, right before Easter. And this year has had an ex- execution of a friend of mine scheduled on Thursday. And it's kind of like, man, if we're executing people right before Easter, we might've missed the whole point of this thing, you know? So we're going to be doing a lot in Tennessee, but you know, there in Alabama, Brian Stevenson and EJI equal justice initiative are doing tremendous work. If folks haven't read the book, just mercy or, or um, seen the film, they should do that. But we're also, um, we've been uh, beating guns into garden tools too. So folks can see our work. I'm real active on social media, you know, on Twitter and Facebook. And um, that powerful visual sort of uh, prophetic imagination of Mike and Isaiah that God's people will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks uh, has really come to inspire us to turn the instruments of death into tools of life. So we've been literally melting guns into garden tools. We're still working on getting a hold of one of the electric chairs. I think uh, we could melt that down into something better too. But that's, uh, you know, that's what I've been doing. I'm uh, traveling and speaking and um, uh, hopefully folks can see me, you know, along the way. And uh, we've got our little community here in Philadelphia, the simple way uh, we've been going for uh, over 20 years now. So, you know, folks can keep us in their prayers. If you're in Philly, come uh, visit us at The Simple Way. And, it, you know, the other thing I'm doing these days is there's a whole movement called Red Letter Christians that comes from the old Bibles that have the words of Jesus sort of highlighted in red. And we're, we're, we're really going, we want to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We want a Christianity that looks like Jesus, that acts like Jesus again. And, and, you know, Jesus said that they will know that we are Christians by his love, by our love. And that's what we want to be known by. So folks can keep up with us uh, there at redletterchristians.org. And we've got events that we're doing around the country and things like that, too. So there's a lot happening. And I am so encouraged. I'm so glad to be a part of the conversation with you, Jason. And I, I think there's a whole movement of Christians that, that want a Christianity that reminds the world of Jesus again. And uh, for a lot of young people, I think they've left the church because they don't see it acting and living and loving like Jesus sometimes. So we, the best, the best uh, way to correct what's gone wrong is to try to practice something better. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do together. Well, brother, I'm so grateful for you for the consistency and faithfulness of your message and your ministry and your work there in Philadelphia. I know that right now, as the coronavirus seems to be kind of taking off in the United States, sports are shutting down, big events are closing, churches are closing their doors. A lot of times, folks like you who are in the trenches doing the work uh, get overlooked and and the events get canceled and the speaking opportunities dry up. What are some ways that our listeners can invest in what you're doing right now? Yeah, we. it's, it's funny that you said that because we, we have had... Uh, 
like half a dozen events canceled because of the sicknesses. And and understandably, you know, we want people to be safe and well. So, but it it, it is how our ministries are supported. I, I I just get a living stipend, and all the money from speaking and writing, you know, kind of comes to fuel our ministry. So. Folks can, we, we love all the support we can get. You know, if folks want to support our local work, they can go to the simpleway.org and give a donation there. If folks want to support the more movement work around the country, they can go to redletterchristians.org. We actually had someone, we lost about $10,000 worth of different uh, uh, honorariums from speaking, but then we had someone step up just uh, two weeks ago and give $10,000. So we're so grateful for all the support, whether it's a large gift like that or folks that just go to redletterchristians.org and say, hey, I want to give like 20 bucks a month and do what I can, or I just want to be a part of this movement and pray for, for you guys. So uh, we're just trying to you know, live into the the unity that Jesus prayed for, that we would be one as God is one so that more and more people can know of God's love. Including links to Shane's books, to The Simple Way, to Red Letter Christians, and to Shane's social media channels in the show notes. Please read his recent books, Executing Grace and Beating Guns. If you've never read Irresistible Revolution, please get a copy of it and let it do its work in your heart and your mind. That book seriously changed my life. Shane, thank you so much for being a part of the broadcast today. Thank you, Jason. It's an honor to be your guest. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.